I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. The Studio Ghibli Collection, Part 7. Howl's Moving Castle, Tales from Earthsea, and Ponyo. From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, the director of the Academy Award-winning Spirited Away. That is ancient sorcery. Quite powerful, too. This summer, experience the epic tale of a young woman transformed by a mysterious curse. That's really me, isn't it? An enchanted moving castle. This is a magic house. And the one wizard powerful enough to set her free. This charm will guarantee your safe return. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli production of a Hayao Miyazaki film. Hold on. This June, journey to amazing new worlds. Find me in the future! Aboard Howl's Moving Castle. This was also pretty massive after Spirited Away. This one uh, has a star-studded cast, including uh, Emily Mortimer, Christian Bale in one of his less screamy animated roles, Lauren Bacall as the Witch of the Waste, Billy Crystal as Calcifer, and as the bearded child, Josh Hutcherson. No bearded child, then make, make me snakes! snakes. <laughs> oh, Blythe Danner was in it as well. Oh. <laughs> So Sophie is trapped in a moving castle with um, Josh Hutchison. Yeah, it's all fanfic. Yes. Uh, but this was Hayao Miyazaki coming back again, and again after the, the 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 lightness of what we've just been discussing, it feels like now we're fi- like firing on all Ghibli cylinders again. It's not Spirited Away. Nothing is. It's also not Princess Mononoke. It has a very kind of Beauty and the Beast feel to it, at least at first. But I think the way it's structured leaves you feeling like everything's going to be okay at a certain point, but then it's not neatly tied up in a bow. It just sort of carries on for a while longer and gives you what feels eventually like a whole other act where everything falls far further apart. And then it's not that everything's okay at the end, but there is a resolution that feels satisfactory. Sophie is a girl who works... Is she a hat maker? Yes. Yeah. Uh, And she is depicted as being plain and not particularly beautiful while her sister and her mother are beauties and uh, always have the boy's eyes and uh, very glamorous and notably they are the ones always clad in that ghibli pink Mm. like they are rosy red and 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 uh, almost cherubic in their faces yeah sophie is is sort of generally very neutral yellows and greens Mm. separate from the whole the the glamorous lifestyle of feminine energy i i don't really get the impression of of sophie being viewed as plain and and dull and anything like it, it, it she doesn't come across like a cinderella type who's being held down by her family 
they do in fact try to encourage her to come yeah, they're out not mean. with them. But she is extremely introverted and that whole world of being a fashion plate and uh, wanting to draw everybody's attention makes her come out in hives, frankly. Mm. Just, just the... The way she sort of, her shoulders draw in when she thinks about it in mm. a manner that suggests it's the worst thing she could possibly imagine. And every introvert watching the film goes, I don't see the problem here. No, absolutely. I am with you, Sophie. <laughs> um, but it, it does sort of, there's a lovely way that this beginning part is set up and it really does give you this feeling that there are people who make hats and there are people who wear hats and they are not the same people. <laughs> nice. Yes. <laughs> So ultimately, what we're presented with is, <clears throat> in the mode of the story, Sophie is not happy, and Sophie is full of anxiety, and Sophie is very lonely, and there needs to be change. She is also kind of a doormat and a dormouse, so when she's walking around in the uh, back alleys, she gets stopped by soldiers. Now, she lives in a very militant place where uh, the, the, the kingdom is either invading or being invaded all the time. And there's a lot of troop movements, a lot of trooping of the color, a lot of flying machines, especially later, mm. and conflict that's just outside the periphery. And from the perspective of the civilians, it's all good war. Yeah, it's, it feels very... I, my instinct says Swiss, but it feels very like that sort of border area between Germany and Italy and and kind of that that European zone which gets very tense whenever there's any European wars going on <laughs> but it does definitely have that sense of a people who have to be comfortable with the military being around all the time yeah and very specifically, Sophie needs to get through an alley and gets stopped by two soldiers who just won't let her pass and are goading her. And they're more than a little bit rapey little in, bit. in their conduct. Yeah, about as, as uh, comfortable as you can make it in a uh, family film, but it's, it's not pleasant. And they get stopped, <clears throat> and they are stopped by the titular Howell, who turns up in blonde glory with a star on his face and an earring, looking like David Bowie in... Labyrinth. You remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. And being very confident and taking Sophie up and flying over the rooftops. And it's it's very much uh, he kind of he literally sweeps her off her feet and he's very charming and dashing and then goes right that's your lot I'm off in a kind of now that we've had all this fun which is a bit of a letdown because you like Sophie think oh are we going somewhere no nope, apparently no no that was that was it. And then you feel Sophie's sense of rejection of, well, I guess he probably rejected me because I'm so ugly and I make hats. But again, as well as the war, the people have kind of gotten used to the idea of Howell being out there in his castle, stomping around the place, this kind of mythological figure, this male Baba Yaga type. Yeah, what's, what's their perception of him? Because he's like, he's a wizard. And I do get a little bit of that Gandalf, he comes and goes as he pleases. Mm -hmm vibe but he's also very young and there's kind of an indulgent well you can't really expect he's not a tame wizard he's very wild <laughs> yeah i mean that fits with the beastie he turns into later mm. but uh, it's he's not trusted but at the same time clearly it's been uh, noted that he's rather handsome because when the ladies come into sophie's shop they're all gushing about oh do you hear about that howl's going to snatch you away mm. but he does like the the fact that his name is howl is very appropriate because because he does sort of 
give me a similar sense to the way the werewolves are talked about in Company of Wolves, that these mysterious strangers will turn up and oh, they're very dashing and oh, they're very, uh, they're very handsome and they bring excitement to a village that doesn't get a lot of excitement, but you really want to be careful of them and for the love of God, don't run off with them. Yeah. What Sophie lacks is a grandma to uh, tell her stories of men with eyebrows that meet in the middle. But what does Sophie become? A grandma. <laughs> Uh, but she also gets a grandma throughout the course of the story. So, um, the Witch of the Wastes is trying to find Howl and comes into Sophie's shop and she's kind of this pompous, rich lady with creepy shadow footmen going around in, uh, what is it, a, a litter where you've got the four people carrying you around. And she kind of reminds me a little bit of an Alice in Wonderland uh, or is it through the looking glass with the Duchess? Uh, no, Wonderland was the Duchess. Yes, I think Speak so. severely to my boy and beat yeah. him when he sneezes. Yeah. I don't recall associating her with any chess pieces, yeah. so yeah. It has that same irrational, slightly too aggressive, and at the same time dismissiveness of Lewis Carroll. And it was written by Diana Wynne-Jones, who also wrote Earwig and the Witch, a story that we will be coming back to also sadly passed away, but clearly Hayao Miyazaki and other Miyazakis are fans. And we've got at least one Diana Wynne-Jones fan on the Discord who was like, they got Sophie completely wrong. She is pissed off with what happens to her. And I think that the enchantment placed on Sophie by the Witch of the Wastes is that she, in a really quite frightening moment, gleefully turns into a ghost and rushes at the camera and flies through Sophie. And then as she leaves the shop, because Sophie dared to tell her they were closed, Sophie is left an old woman. And then she runs up to uh, her bedroom and hides there, looking at her wrinkled old hands for about 12 hours straight until her mother comes around giving her no excuse but to hide from her even further. Sophie is stuck in an old woman's form for then most of the rest of the movie. What does this entail? What does it mean? What does it do to her life? And obviously, while it turfs her out of her little bubble and into Howl's moving castle. That's the name of the movie. The fact that she's old, it's, it's not. she's not just been turned into any old thing, the fact that she's old feels significant. There's, I would say there's two takes that are the most obvious ones. If you have any uh, any sub-interpretations, then by all means add them. But the, the two key ones I would say is, first of all, the suggestion is Sophie is already living the life of an old woman. She is not taking advantage of her youth or using it for anything or trying to change her life or go in a different direction. So it's almost like the the enchantment is saying, well, if you're going to behave like this, you might as well be an old woman already. We'll push the slider to maximum spinster. Yes, indeed. So there's that. The other interpretation, which is more positive, is that what this enchantment does is removes the obligations upon Sophie, which, I mean, she has dodged impressively so far anyway, but for somebody who is young and attractive, which she is, there is a lot of, come on, come on out 
with us. You might meet a nice boy, get yourself married, set yourself up with a family. By leaping straight to crone status, <laughs> she manages to wiggle out of an awful lot of that. And it also kind of shows her that she has an internal wisdom that actually she might know herself and her life better than anyone else and that listening to herself is valid because now she can see in the mirror an old woman who's experienced life and knows more than she thinks she does. So those, I would say, are, are sort of two distinct ways of, of looking at it. I think in this, both are true. I also feel like they removed a little bit of her fieriness, at least immediately after she gets uh, transformed, because she had to work her way up to being more assertive about her own existence. But that's that's the thing. She that's, has more of a journey to go on. Yeah, but that kind of folds into the whole leaping straight to crone status. That's sort of speaks of the old woman who wore, wears purple. The lady who has... Oh, you mean the Witch of the Waste? No, no, no. <laughs> no, there's a poem called When I Am an Old Woman, I Will Wear Purple. I know. And it basically... Yeah. It basically says, once I get past the point where you people think you have any say in my life and because you think I'm old and now pointless and, and not contributing anything to the world, you will fucking leave me alone and I can dress how the fuck I want and wander around with walking sticks hitting children with it. <laughs> Jesus. Um, <laughs> I will be the witch of the wastes now. Indeed. But there, there, is a, there is an element of freedom to the crone stage of life. I'm 82. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. Um, but, but that feeling of, I, I have seen some shit and none of you young people can tell me anything. <laughs> and I think there's, there is a, a sort of a giving Sophie license to embrace that and take on the role of, it's not quite matriarch, but the residents of the castle all seem to look up to her as somebody who can take care of them and, and uh, give them guidance that they didn't have before. But at the same time, it's not quite the same thing as being stuck in the position that, say, uh, Laputa is in uh, Castle in the Sky, where she is doing all the housework and everybody is... Um, uh, sort of hanging on to her for basic everyday stuff. This is noteworthy. Chaco Baisho voiced uh, Sophie in the Japanese dub. The English dub, Jean Simmons, no, not that one, Jean with a J, voiced her as older Sophie, who is the majority of the film. That's a choice. That is a stylistic choice that rather than just having uh, uh, the uh, actress sound old, they swapped her out. Mm. So my question then would be, did they cast Jean Simmons first and then decide they needed a younger woman to play Sophie's younger voice? Or did they cast Emily Mortimer first and then find out that she didn't have the control necessary to make herself sound older? Hmm. It does seem like you wouldn't get cast unless they said, could you do an old lady voice first? It does seem that way. <laughs> As opposed to, we like the sound of your young voice. Mm. We're going to guess that you can do an old lady voice and we're going to hire you without hearing it. Yeah. Or American casting directors couldn't get their head around the idea that a woman might be able to sound like several different ages. I know at least one woman, several women, who in fact can sound old at will Absolutely. and cantankerous and funny. Let's 
the neighbors once again came by, and we had to tell them that Helen was desperately ill and suffering from a delusional fever. Hold steady while I dress this. I can attend to her, Cleo. Have you been in the role of medic in the past, Mr. Culver? No, but I've seen many men attended to. Well, I've been the one doing the attending. I can see to my niece there are other tasks that require your attention. It's two in the flipping morning! What the bloody hell do you think you're playing at, Loxley? Megan, I apologize for our appalling timing. I know we woke you, and this can't be at all convenient. No, it's not. I was having a luscious dream about a strapping farmhand with eyes like the sea after a storm, asking me to help him shave. Put him on the floor, Mrs. Pointy. Let me take a seat and get a look at him. Doesn't speak our language, huh? No, Cub, I cannot hear you. See? She closes her eyes and pats her ears, and then shakes her head and opens her eyes again. He nods and comprehends. Do you know what he is? Granted, I was a bit harsh there, but her little goody two-shoes... Me, 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 me. I shall vouch for her strength of character myself. Now sheathe those claws, young squire. It's unbecoming of a gentleman. Yes, madam. Hey, old mama, what's this here fella's name? That's old Ned. He was one of my husbands a while back. Didn't work out. Nah, he liked to talk too much, jabbering at me in my sleep. You don't know what you're missing out on, old girl. Let's back it up here. Well, it must have been the, the summer of 1862, I believe. Uh, oh, let me tell you, I was once finger-banged by Abraham Lincoln's nephew. Oh, oh my, quite a tall fellow he was. In fact, when he removed his riding glove, it was like a fist. She winds up uh, staggering into this... Uh, castle, which again is stomping around in the the misty uh, countryside, and this is a flying machine in all but flying, if that makes sense. In that it looks like Miyazaki's flying fortresses, but it's a big ramshackle, teetering house that also looks somewhat like a rhinoceros, a little bit insectoid, ungainly, and at the same time fascinating to look at. I, I, I was uh, told, you know, that the, the castle is ugly. And I was like, that's ugly to you? This is, it's ugly the way Hellboy is ugly. Fascinating. And it's, uh, okay, you, you mentioned that Howl is a little bit of a Baba Yaga type. I would say Howl is not, but this is definitely a Baba Yaga house. It made me feel like that's not your castle. <laughs> that, Nothing about this castle. That's your grandma's castle and she doesn't know you have it. <laughs> the castle itself is kind of a big ugly beastie, but it's not the same level of wild and savage as Hal when he fully transforms into a sort of a crow thing. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, that's true actually. Howl's He's feral inner and nature hungers for flesh. Is that of somebody who does not really have a house? <laughs> Uh, honestly, if, if there's anyone in this film that actually the castle feels oddly like, it's the Scarecrow, who bounces around with Sophie the whole time. Uh, what's his name? Turnip Head. It, he has that same kind of well-meaning, slightly awkward, well, how about this, going on. 
It's a mute role, but in a very child accessible, especially odd quirky children that I love um, way, Sophie falls in with a gang of misfits almost immediately. It's not like she arrives at Howl's moving castle and, and Howl is there like the beast and he's like, welcome to my humble abode. It's more of she walks in through the back door kind of accidentally and she's got a scarecrow there who's mute and she makes friends with the heart of the castle, the uh, a, a flame spirit from the fireplace named Calcifer, who I, I've throughout my uh, time watched this only in the uh, American version. And so that's this is, Calcifer has always been Billy Crystal to me. So it felt strange to, to, to hear him slightly less approachable and a bit more kind of... And she makes friends with this little boy called Markle, who delightfully disguises himself by putting on a cloak and then just pulling out a giant beard to make himself look like an, a little old man. And he does it in such a sort of a calm, neat way as they're sort of going in and, and scuttling out. And luckily, it's kind of got a TARDIS-like quality, this castle, so they can close the door turn a switch and then open the door to find themselves in an alleyway in the city that she just came from. Which explains how Howl is able to move in and out of this thing. It has um, also the Sanctum Sanctorum type properties. Uh, effectively, it is an extraordinary masterpiece of a place and Howl doesn't deserve it because he's a little shit. <laughs> Almost immediately after having uh, met her, when he, he turns up again, he's kind of blasé and then goes upstairs to wash his hair and then comes down with ginger hair after it was blonde, screeching at Sophie and screaming and throwing a little fit because he didn't want to have ginger hair. And he's kind of off-putting and standoffish and like a little Lord Fauntleroy type. I'm also reminded a little of Colin from The Secret Garden. Mm. He's very much Lord of the Manor, which again puts us in mind of the kid who said, go away to the old woman and, uh, and wound up as a beast. Yes. Yeah, he does have that, that vibe about him. So much so that I just thought, so this is, she falls in love with him and then he stops being a beast, right? <laughs> But the, there's more going on with him than the initial presentation would suggest. Okay. Elaborate. So when it's relatively unusual for that mysterious wizard type, and he doesn't have that sort of old mysterious wizard thing going on, but there's, there's, a, uh, there's a, a wild magic about him, like you said. But finding out about the, the backstory and the... Um, the personal traits of characters like that is unusual. So when we get to learn about how Howl has wound up in this situation, the, the position that he has kind of put himself in through virtue of his own personal ethics, it feels like there's another version of this story which is Howl's story that's being told round the back, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, that, I mean, one of the elements that I'm, I'm thinking of specifically is that Howl has gone out of his way to, he, you know, he's put a lot of effort into learning to be a wizard. He's very proud of his, his sort of magical education, but ultimately it came at a price and he was expected to give his loyalty and service to the king. And he didn't want to, so he fucked off in the castle. <laughs> 
and hence why it wanders around all over the place. And this this sort of gives a mirror to that the the town that Sophie comes from being absolutely saturated in military presence. She has been given an opportunity to run away from that, which is something that Howell's already done. And he's giving her, I suppose, the flavor of a life that is so different from hers. Honestly, if you drew like a personality wheel, they would be at completely opposite points on it in terms of, of how they engage with life. But it's almost like this world that's being offered to Sophie, once she's in it, she falls in love with it. But she needed something to pull her in that direction in the first place because she never would have gone down that path on her own. There's a strong anti-war theme in here. Uh, when uh, he received the Oscar for Spirited Away, Miyazaki, he received it in 2002. Uh, I was uh, going to say, hang on, this was 2001. Did it go up against Shrek? No, Shrek was the film made as an example of why we need a best animated feature, because it's not just going to go to Disney each year. So Spirited Away was up against Ice Age, Lilo and Stitch, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, and Treasure Planet. No contest. Lilo and Stitch is magnificent, but still no. And it's sandwiched between Finding Nemo, which won uh, the year after, and Shrek, which won the year before. So Miyazaki was like, oh, I'm in such good company. The, uh, the Second Iraq War was going on at this point, and Hayao was grinding his teeth that he'd have to go to America and accept an award from uh, people who were, to his mind, waging war, and he is staunchly pacifist. So he has Howell express this in the film. He, he, he's, he's, they look at a flying machine off to fight someone else, and uh, the, the the woman who's uh, putting uh, the uh, the war into uh, action, Madame Suleiman, appears to be doing it for no noble means. Mm, yeah. And Howell expresses his ire and is effectively a conscientious objector in this point. Indeed. Although, and, and calls the people who fly off to war as stupid murderers. Yeah, apparently this wasn't just like a, a sort of a, a looking over the glasses, finger wagging, now here's some pacifist imagery for you and, and ideals because... I don't you think really pacifist thema thematic films are that. Ever. No, well indeed, but apparently... It's the biggest thing we have to the, get over. Yeah. But Culturally speaking, we must evolve beyond war should be number one after we must make sure we don't immediately die on a global scale immediately once we at least get towards evolving a natural equilibrium with our own planet maybe evolving beyond war might be the next thing to do after that indeed it's not just finger wagging uh he was actively trying to piss off the americans <laughs> Uh, I watched a fantastic piece on this which uh, suggested that when the Witch of the Waste turns back up again, she's kind of grotesque, a little bit daft looking, and she and Sophie have to climb the royal steps to go speak with the Madame Suleiman, a combination of Mrs. Pentstemon and Wizard Suleiman from the book. And she looks benevolent, but she isn't. Uh, but they have to climb her steps, and the Witch of the Waste begins in a, a sort of glamorous state that she uh, first appeared to uh, Sophie as, but by the end of the steps, she's this sort of huffing, puffing old chunk of chewed bubblegum. And the piece I was watching said that the Witch of the Waste as the Arbiter of Change 
is as threatening as she needs to be. Sophie, halfway up, realizes that she's outpacing this uh, lady, even though she herself is old and knackered. And she kind of chides her about it, but keeps her moving. And that's when this castling takes place between them. For, from, at the very beginning, the Witch of the Waste absolutely was dominating Sophie and rendered her with this enchantment in a way that is, ab that is inescapable to her. Uh, in a cruel and uncalculated move. It's chaotic. She's not teaching Sophie a lesson. She's just hurting her and cursing her. But then Sophie starts supporting the witch as she starts to turn into this sweaty lump and ends up kind of keeping her around. And it becomes very apparent that the witch is very lonely and dependent mm. and had all these shadow demons with her, but they can't, they aren't much for conversation. And Sophie's warm enough and kind of no nonsense by this point that she can kind of fall into the role of grandma and actually ends up being appreciated in that particular capacity, which is really sweet to see because you, like, it's very rare that someone so frightening ends up pathetic, but at the same time kind of that they're harmless and helpful. Mm, yeah, I mean, not quite helpful, but there is a parallel. There's another parallel with uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass. The end when Alice ends up picking up the Red Queen. And, and shaking she, her. Shaking her until she turns, turns into, into a, a kitten. <laughs> Don't shake your cat, folks. No. <laughs> shake your chess pieces, by all means. but not Shake your cat. Watch yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as it turns out, Hal ate a star and was thus cursed or something. I've seen this film five times. What happened? We flash back to it. I don't. He noshed a star off. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's unclear. <laughs> it's unclear. <laughs> and so there is, has been an enchantment placed on him. But it seems again like a, a little bit like a the the Porco Rosso thing. The Porco Marco opted out of war. And then his form changed, mm. and Howl opted out of war, and his form changed. Yeah. It seems Although much more. There's, I think there is a slight element. He was magical of... ready because it knocked off that star, but the yeah. the the further enchantment and the body warping happens after that. Yeah, but the, there is sort of an element of he reached too far. He was arrogant and full of himself in terms of what he'd learned already, and didn't think that the uh, the cautions and safeguards that everybody else seemed to have to adhere to applied to him. Also, it was important... And he ends up coming a cropper because of it. Also, it was important that uh, they didn't make it that Sophie then turns back from a old, ugly woman into a young, beautiful woman, finally. Uh, or even just a case of, as with Fiona, just be told she's beautiful and believe it. Mm. There are several transformations which work so well within the milieu of animation that would not work so well in live action because you'd immediately see it. Yeah, where she goes very subtle. She, she, she twists from old to young but maintains the grey hair, goes back again, and the negativity is not necessarily only associated with being old, and it doesn't have that, ew, old people feel about it, especially with the Witch of the Wastes settling into her role there's an honor to it mm, yeah which i think is is very much part of japanese society seems to be and i fully support this being able to respect the elderly um 
rather than simply shunting them to one side as an inconvenience. Well, it's it, what it fundamentally comes down to, I think, is the sense of don't assume that just because someone has passed the... Uh, what capitalism thinks of as your economically useful period, mm. that they have nothing left to give and, and nothing useful to venture. They have information that you can never have because they were alive when you weren't. They have practice at things that you don't because they've been doing them for decades longer than you've been around. Right, you might want to dial this one back. It sounds like we're trying to sing for our supper before they take away our mush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting to that point, really, aren't we? Yeah. No, but what... You young whippersnappers with but your the... booby boxes. <laughs> the lyrics, they were so hateful. Homework's whack and so are rules. Tuck it in your shirts for fools. No! But the, the point of Sophie going backwards and forwards, I think, is that nobody breaks the enchantment for her. She doesn't get a kiss that turns her back. She doesn't, ha you know, she doesn't have to How achieve loving her doesn't a quest to take it off. No, fundamentally, what brings Sophie back to herself is behaving like herself, is allowing her own character to come forward, is not being the timid little dormouse in the corner who's letting everybody tell her what to do all the time, and ultimately it, it sort of ends up becoming this, the back and forth kind of shows that she can draw on the balance of power between the passion of youth and the temperance of age, which Hal lacks completely. All he's got, he's this sort of raging ball of, of passion and Calcifer kind of represents that as well, just being this little flame. Um, Sophie is able to bring a mitigating element to that, but while still be a, being able to keep some of that enthusiasm and passion for herself. It's almost like that, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a big fan of anything that explores the idea of a, a balance between two states that we are customarily told is a dichotomy and we have to choose between the two, or that one is good and the other one is bad. Very, very frequently, uh, it's stories where it's a balance of, uh, of masculine and feminine kind of energies, but old and young while not being exactly the same kind of split it's the same tone that there is usefulness and meaning and rightness in both of these states you shouldn't have to pin all your feathers to one of them and at the end turnip head is kissed by sophie and magically turns back into the missing prince from the other kingdom that they're waging war with and says only my true love's kiss could break this particular enchantment but he also recognizes that sophie feels more affection for howl than for the scarecrow although uh, uh, you know in his defense he was a scarecrow and unable to talk it wasn't like the scarecrow and wizard was uh, but it's it's noteworthy because uh, you don't see many enchantments where a man loves a woman, she kisses him and fixes the enchantment, but they don't necessarily end up together. Him loving her was the reason. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's it's a sense of it's a series of crossed enchantments, but also we don't necessarily have to be the thing that fixes a person that then remains that thing there for that person if that makes sense. It does, yeah. And it it is almost like if you if you 
relate it back to Beauty and the Beast. Obviously the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast, which isn't necessarily what was in the original story, but it's, it's this whole thing about you have to fall in love and earn her love in return. This feels more like, again, what breaks the enchantment is him learning to love and connecting with somebody, whether that person returns that emotion in that same way or not. And he and Sophie obviously do have a bond going on um, and, a, and a connection. But Albeit it's, an unspoken one because he's a scarecrow bouncing yeah, around on a wooden but, pole. But again, it's, it's this, so it's another example of an enchantment being broken by an internal change coming out rather than somebody external to you ticking a box or giving you a ring or, or doing something that suddenly magically changes things but that you really had no power over. What would be the point in in terms of myth and, and fairy tale and... What would be the um, value? What could we yeah, learn what are, from Yeah, what are we learning from it? Well, you just sit there in that corner until somebody comes along and kisses you. Get finger banged. I think that's been Sophie's problem the whole time. She's been sat in a corner making hats. Well, yeah, but she, I mean, she's not... At that stage, she's not really waiting for anything exactly, or at least if she is, she she's doesn't certainly know not, what she's She doesn't have an for. I want she's song. Not, no, she's not lamenting the lack of anything. She's not sitting there going, oh, my life is so boring, I wish something would happen. She's just... I think on some level she is thinking that. Mm. Suppose, there is a yeah. there is a sort of I'm I'm a boring person and nothing interesting ever happened to me I suppose will I go outside no the kettle just killed itself rather than be used by me <laughs> she's not that depressing <laughs> but yeah but she does she does yeah she kind of embraces the idea of Howl picking her up and taking her off to places unknown mm. uh, with remarkable enthusiasm yeah and the the castle symbolically gets broken down until it is almost nothing, a junk pile running along on these two spindly legs, and then is rebuilt into a magnificent flying machine at the end, as both of them, what? As Miyazaki is wont to do. Yeah. As they take to the clouds freed of the things that were holding them to the earth. As a postscript to Hal's Moving Castle, let's hear from someone who has been a longtime lover of the book by Diana Wynne-Jones, and who wasn't exactly thrilled by Hayao Miyazaki's interpretation. This is Alejandra Vargas. I've long forgotten which I encountered first, though it was probably the movie. I don't want to diminish anyone's enjoyment of the film, merely convey why the book is so special. To begin with, the book has a much larger cast of characters with more complex relationships. Just as an example, Sophie has two sisters in the book, Martha and Letty. After their father's passing, Sophie's stepmother has to send them off to apprenticeships to cover the debt from their father sending them to good schools. Letty is sent to the bakery, and Martha is sent to be a witch's apprentice, with Sophie staying behind to work in the hat shop since she is the eldest. But Letty and Martha aren't happy with their assigned profession, so they switch places using an appearance charm Martha learned. Which leads to some shenanigans when Marco, who is 15 in the book, falls for Letty in the bakery, who he thinks is Martha, while Hal is attempting to court Martha at the witch's shop, Martha having assumed her original identity since the witch saw through her own magic immediately, but much preferred having a willing apprentice. 
Oh, but don't worry about love triangles. Martha is already smitten with the wizard Solomon, who was turned into a dog by the Witch of the Wastes, and Hal is using the wooing of Martha as an excuse to ask questions about Sophie. Okay, so this level of complication is charmingly silly in the book, but would absolutely drag down a movie. Too many characters demanding screen time and audience memory. It is indicative of something that was lost in the adaptation, though, namely the writing style. The movie is a charming fantasy romance with anti-war themes. The book is much more romance-focused. Not in a way you'd expect, though. The story is mostly told from Sophie's perspective, and the audience is privy to her thoughts on things. But Sophie lies to herself a lot. She is very hung up on her status as the eldest daughter of a well-off and kind hat shop owner, which apparently means she will never go on grand adventures, because that's just not how stories go. The world is much less steampunk and more fairy tale, with everyone seeming to have a certain amount of genre savvy about what living in a fairy tale means. But the world doesn't actually conform to fairy tale tropes. Sophie just assumes it does when it comes to herself as a form of self-deprecation. The comedy and the style isn't exactly Princess Bride, but it's in the same ballpark. The Howl of the Book is much more of a scoundrel with a very secret soft side. Large chunks of his time are spending hours in the bathroom perfecting his look before he heads out to woo ladies. But Hal, Marco, and Calcifer all talk about Hal doesn't really love these ladies, he is just desperate to feel loved. Once he seduces them, he loses interest. He's described by Sophie as a slitherer outer, a person who refuses to be nailed down to doing anything, and we see a lot of that. Him sending Sophie to the king is about him not really wanting to confront the Witch of the Waste. There is no war for him to object to. But even with all his vanity and cowardice, the actions he takes can only contradict his supposed heartlessness. He is extremely generous with his spellcraft for poor townsfolk, funding his expensive clothes habit by overcharging the nobles. He attends the funeral of his magic teacher even though he knows the Witch of the Waste will be expecting him there. And indeed, they do get into a spectacular wizard duel after the funeral. He attempts to lift Sophie's age curse without being asked. He also has a sister. The mysterious and frankly confusing black door in the movie leads to Wales in the book. Cause Howl is from Wales, he's a proper Welshman, played rugby and everything. The black door allows him to visit his sister and her kids who he clearly loves. He refused to shut down this portal even after the witch discovers it. It's also quite funny when Sophie and Marco visit Wales and just take the magic talking televisions and horseless carriages in stride. The book asks you to judge Hal by his actions, in spite of his self-deception and Sophie's poor impression of him. It makes for a very rewarding reread, trying to spot what parts of his bad behavior are a front. The movie makes him much more of a romantic hero, an understandable simplification, given how much time would get eaten up unpacking Hal's layered schemes. The character I think most deserved by the adaptation is Sophie. Book Sophie has much more rage, jealousy, and nosiness. She also 
has magic powers. She is a naturally skilled word wizard, imbuing things with life and charms by talking to them. She is unaware of this for about half the story, unintentionally charming the hat she was selling, which leads to the Witch of the Waste cursing her for being competition. Sophie brings Turnip Head to life and turns her walking stick into a magic staff by muttering to it constantly. She simply has a lot more to do as an active member of the household. She saves the day at the end, not only with the power of love, but also the power of whacking people with her stick. And the final moments of her and Hal staring into each other with unabashed love is such a glorious release after a whole book of them lying to themselves. I've tried to convey the joys of this book without giving away too much. It's broadly similar to the film, but will have a lot of surprises for new readers. In no way must we choose which version is the real version. They can exist simultaneously, and Diana Wynne-Jones seems at least fond of the movie. It's not a long book, so please consider giving it a try. From Studio Ghibli, creators of the award-winning Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle, comes a breathtaking adventure. Tales from Earthsea. Share the adventures of a powerful wizard and a young prince as they journey on an epic adventure. From Earthsea. 2006 marks the point where Hayao Miyazaki attempted to retire from animation after finishing Howl's Moving Castle. Sharon is doing the inverted comma speech marks thing. Attempted, attempted to, to retire. retire. I mean, it's not for want of trying. No. It's for lack of restfulness. I think there's two elements to it. One is he can't put the art down. Yes. Uh, two is that he doesn't trust anyone else to take over the running of the studio. <laughs> he has a funny way. Uh, this one's going to get quite like personal and from the outside, and we will maintain right now that this is just stuff we've picked up from interviews and from what people have said on YouTube. We are probably way off base on a lot of these things and uh, m making assumptions, but... He is a grumpy dad. That one seems to be uh, a universal accepted fact, possibly including by himself. Yeah. And this next one is the most grumpiest daddest scenario because rather than simply going, okay, it's just a little lacking in Miyazaki. It's, it's still, still good. good. It's, it's still, still good. good. Studio Ghibli went, we need to have a Miyazaki, but Hayao Miyazaki has retired how is this going to work? Presumably they already asked Hidetaka Miyazaki, the creative director of From Software, but he would have said, nah, man, I'm doing Demon Souls. And then they asked the guy who made the Ghibli Museum, an architect by the name of Goro Miyazaki. Miyazaki Jr. 
the son of Hayao Miyazaki. Now, every single video we've seen talks about this scenario and says Miyazaki was unhappy with this. I'm like, which Miyazaki? Senior or junior? In, In context, it's always the unhappy one. <laughs> but as... that's the problem. You can't talk about Tales from Earthsea yeah. and not specify which one you're talking about. Miyazaki was a fan of this, unlike Miyazaki, who grew up really loving the books. Ah, that's a clue. <laughs> Miyazaki Jr., Goro, the one with four arms, you have to beat him before Shang Tsung. <laughs> Goro is an unwilling participant in Studio Ghibli in that he's very passionate in a quiet, understated way, and he kind of wants to do things his way and find his way of doing things, but he is most definitely living in the shadow of his father. And... Uh, Tales from Earthsea, you can very much make out revisitation of scenarios visually represented in Hayao's earlier works. Mm -hmm. There are scene-for-scene -scene moments, like um, Wonderboy Conan, or whatever the name of that little anime kid that he did before forming Studio Ghibli, faces down against some wolves. His name is Wolfboy Ken, and there is a facing down against some wolves scene in this. A bit where they bounce and run up the uh, uh, staircase is also very similar to another scenario that he uh, crafted. Now, Tales from Earthsea is the fifth Earthsea book? Correct. Of six? Yep. Obvious it's place to start, really. It's a to start with. But there's a, there's a little hint, a subtle clue. As to why he will, decided... As to why this is one of Goro's favourites. Let's give him some, <laughs> uh, some context so you feel a bit more sorry for Goro first. Hayao, when he found out that Goro was going to be doing a Ghibli film, when he left, when he retired... Said, oh my god. Said, oh my god, what's the fucking point? Or something along those lines. Like, you can't direct Goro. You're, a, you're, you're not a director. And uh, we're putting words into his mouth. I'm sure it was much kinder than that. Or maybe he said, you have shamed me by trying to follow in my footsteps. Or something like that. And his decision was, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to be in contact with you throughout the duration of the making of this film. And animated films take several years, folks. Apparently the only time they ever talked, it was about, are you focusing on the project enough? Yes, I am, Dad! <laughs> okay, now I, you can reveal I, the little nugget that made us think, I wonder why you went with the fifth book. Yeah, so this story opens uh -huh. with a young prince murdering his father for apparently no for reason. reasons no 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 it's not for no reason but it's for reasons that he can't figure out yeah and then he <laughs> runs away He's like oh and then spends the rest of the movie going why did i do that <laughs> and then in the end he does find out but we were like ah oh. no. <laughs> the he should have killed him but, but I understand. I understand. <laughs> okay, so... I, I also... No, I was just going to say, sorry, in, in relation to, like, the making of, I do kind of get why Hayao would have wanted to, to pull back and not 
Like, I feel like the kind of person that he is, and we've seen, we jest, but we have seen what his attempts to retire look like. Mm. I feel like if he had been in closer contact with Goro during the making of this... He would have been snatching away his clapperboard. Yeah, he would not have been able to stop himself interfering. And megaphone. And I feel like this. he felt this was maybe the only way that he could really sit on his hands and let Goro get on. As I said... There is a way of doing this. Yes, you put there is. your hand on his shoulder and you say, "If I stay, I'm going to interfere. I am going to take my old ass away for retirement. I am here whenever you need to talk to me. Go be your own man, son." That's it. That's all. That's all you got to say. But instead, it was like, "Nope, shun." Well, um... I'm sorry. Could you tell Goro to pass the salt? I'm right here, Dad. <laughs> Could you tell my father that I am not talking to him either? Could you, mother, could you tell my father that I've just tried to drink a bowl of syrup? It's very amusing for us, but obviously it was very painful in a, uh, a real scenario. And it's not something that's necessarily been abated. abated. And technically, he's done so much worse than this film, which was, when it came out, dubbed Worst Ghibli Ever. It really isn't. By a bunch of snooty-ass fans. May I introduce you to my neighbours, the Yamadas, or the one with the raccoon balls? <sighs> but no. It's the ones we've already covered. You'll notice that Hayao Miyazaki is never critical about his mate. He never said to Isao Takahata, oh, you're doing My Neighbours the Yamadas in a comic strip style. Well, I'm not going to talk to you for four years. He didn't say that shit to him. Well, no, because he was busy with Spirited Away, but... Well, yeah, but one assumes they met and went, right, right, in the lift, you know. We're, obviously, we're making them a little bit more British than they probably are. So, Ursula, Le Guin, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin is one of the greatest fantasy writers of all time. Revered, beloved died fairly recently, but she lived long enough to see this film and go, oh, fuck no, this is terrible. And she wrote a long piece about like why everything about it was wrong. And so Goro's like hanging his head. He's getting kicks from his father. He's getting kicks from the fans. He's getting kicks from Ursula. I mean, he rallied and came back and made another Ghibli film that's pretty good. Like the, the, the staying power, the determination and grit in Goro Miyazaki to not just be what everyone else tells him I was just I was going to say the sheer fuck youery that he's got going on. <laughs> like, the more people are mean to him, the more he seems to be like, no, I'm doing my own with blackjack and hookers. But it's, it's not that wild. Like, if you told me that Isao Takahata directed Tales from Earthsea, I'd go, I mean, it's it's a, I like it more than his other films. <laughs> That's how I know he Oh, he, he didn't direct it? Oh, that that explains it. Okay. I, I quite, personally, I quite liked this one. I have not read Tales of Earthsea. I actually started reading, considering what a fantasy sci-fi fan I was in my teens, that it has taken me until my mid-40s mm. to get around to reading Ursula K. Le Guin is quite surprising. They are short books. She wrote the first three in a fairly short order, like 1968-70-71. And then nothing, and then like 1995 she wrote the fourth, and then 
2000 and 2001, she wrote the fifth and sixth. Yeah. It's a, it's a really yeah. strangled route to get a, to get a sextet made. It wasn't nothing. Kind of like George her. Lucas. Well, yeah, it wasn't nothing from her perspective. She went into her sci-fi phase. Oh yeah, basically. yeah. Um, and but then she she, came she felt back the pull of her later. Sea, yeah. yeah, which was, is it makes sense because ultimately the lead character in this series appears to be, and I'm an outsider. I have seen this film, which is book five, and I, we read the first one, mm. A Wizard of Earthsea. Yes. Uh, after um, watching that. They are short books. They're like 200 pages or so. Personally, I did not engage that much with the book, but you will find many people online going, here is a blow-by-blow account of what Goro Miyazaki got everything wrong about Ursula K. Le Guin's writing. Mm. It is effectively, a boy is a wizard, and he goes to wizard school, and he learns to be a wizard and then he stops wizard school. It's the whole of the, the first seven books mm. of Harry Potter and he... done in montage. However, the one thing that she really got across was that magic is dangerous and there is a give and take to it. And that if you enter into some kind of powerful magic spell lightly, you unleash something. You open something and uh, this boy Sparrowhawk wants to be very powerful and the spell he casts releases a shadow and everything about this shadow that gets described makes it seem like one of the demons in a James Wan film something that will just stalk and stalk and stalk you and the moment it sees you it will latch onto you and it's it's chilling reading about this thing especially in the context of magic it feels like the way um, that Doctor Strange has been pitched as horror more than anything else in terms of uh, like that the magic is powerful and wild and it's not all fizzing whiz-bangs and chocolate frogs. It's a realm of very scary things. And so even though this is a very serious book about a very serious boy and it never really seems to be in the now and there's very little joy to it, it's kind of trying to teach the kids about personal responsibility. Absolutely. This is one of the elements of it that I, I really, really liked the book and I personally quite liked the film Tales of Ursi, which we will be coming back to. Um, but the that, that core concept that if you engage in the pursuit of power, you unlock the potential for extreme darkness within yourself mm. that you that it's power corrupts is fundamentally the point and if you are going to engage with power wanting to do good with it you have to be willing to take responsibility for the potential for bad that engaging with that power opens up ultimately Le Guin appeared to be trying to create characters and villains that couldn't necessarily be defeated with the swing of a magic sword mm. it was not a case of if you're tough enough, or if you find an artifact powerful enough, you can overcome this. It was about facing yourself. Yeah. And that should have been the drive of Tales of Earthsea. And it feels more like the whole thing kind of gets bogged down with the villain character, whose name is Cobb, and is a, a strangely androgynous character. That, that turns up a lot, especially in 80s Japanese sci-fi, where you get kind of trans-looking characters 
that are villainized and demonized and are super queer coded. In America, I think the Battle of the Planets villain was definitely voiced by a woman. In the, uh, Japan, the uh, Super Sentai Go Force or whatever the name of that original show was before it became Battle of the Planets, the first of two incarnations, the second being G-Force, that was a little bit closer to the original and less like Star Wars. Uh, the villain character was voiced by a man doing a, a more feat voice. Yuko Tanaka, the uh, Japanese actress, plays Cobb in the Japanese version. Willem Dafoe in the English dub. There is a most definite difference in the way this androgynous character is presented. Mm. We watched the Japanese dub in which uh, they were very much positioned as, as female. Honestly, I think the best thing about it, which is not present necessarily in this way in other Ghibli films, is the score, which was by Tamiya Tarashima. And it has this Celtic, haunting, lilting beauty to it that also has this swell of emotional musical storytelling. It's absolutely amazing, breathtaking stuff. And the mentor in this is Sparrowhawk, who was the boy in the first one. So there's this full, like he's now been given charge of this troubled young boy who himself is followed by this shadow. They didn't make enough of what this shadow is. They must explain it away in a hand-wavy fashion because I did not catch it. Mm. They do have the, the sort of the explanation of where it's come from and what it does, but it doesn't really feel... Having, having understood from a Wizard of Earthsea what this being most likely is, that it was either released or brought about the prince's instinctive lashing out at his father, that is never really given much in the way of teeth. Do you see why not exploring this theme is the downfall of this movie? Oh, though? absolutely. And I think that's probably why Ursula K. Guin did not like it. It's, it's baffling. Goro, faced with the possibility of making the big emotional climax why did I do this thing? Because when you start a book with a father who talks about his son that he loves, and then he goes through a doorway and goes, huh? And then the someone runs at him out of the darkness and kills him, and it's his son. And you're like, why did he do that? That poses a great question, which by the end of the film requires a great answer and a big emotional climax of... I understand that on a conscious level I would never do this to my father, but there is something inside me that this was feeding on. Yeah, but instead... Something like that, a dangerous way of confronting yeah. that we can all be villains. But Sparrowhawk, who we now know went through something very similar in his own youth, mm -hmm. never sits down and has the conversation with the prince about that You didn't have the talk, element. did you? No. So this wizard's been to the puppet show and he's seen the strings. Yes. But then the film itself shifts all of its attention onto the I want to be immortal villain guy who really doesn't have a great deal to do with what's going on with the prince other than to say if you pursue that line, which he isn't. He isn't pursuing power. No. As, as far as we can see, it's, it's, for him it's about that, that rage that came from somewhere and he doesn't understand. This is our territory, basically. Cobb, the villain, is like, well, you see, if you carry on up that path, mm. then this is how you'll end up. And what path's that, then? 
because that's not the path I was on. Yeah. Stories about musical Japanese schoolgirls meeting cats are a bit more sort of out of our yes. league. And stories about magical tanukis with bollock beanbag sacks are, uh, again, like that. That's right off the table. But with this, we're like, okay, we understand exactly what the shape of this needs to be. And then by the end, you're like, wow, that feels like it was missing a whole reel. And then, I don't know if I want to spoil the very end. Yes, yeah, spoil but it. Something happens in the last Say like, it. five minutes. The girl who has been his companion yep. after some initial she can't stand him and they have to overcome that. Yeah, well, yeah. But she has been his companion for the entire back end of the third act. Yep. Turns into a dragon well, yeah. without so much as a bayouli. Well, that's what happens with... Again, it feels like if you're adapting books, especially a late book in a series, mm. this was the sec last but one, with no preamble... Like, it reminds me of the uh, the Chronicles of Prydane. Do you know the film that that became? I do, but I can't think what it's called. The Black Cauldron. Oh. A complete fucking flop yes. that everyone said is the worst Disney film ever. It's not. It's But that particular book is like the second in the series, Chicken and they seem Little to have no... Exists. Yes, yeah. People hadn't yet seen Earwig and the Witch. Mm. Earwig and the Witch by Goro Miyazaki is actually the worst Ghibli film ever. But in between, he's going to do something good. He has been hailed as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. This summer, Hayao Miyazaki, director of the Academy Award-winning Spirited Away, releases his next masterpiece. We've all been waiting for you. The whole world is out of balance. Ponyo, you have to trust me. You're the only one who can save the planet. Do it now, do it! Walt Disney Pictures presents a Studio Ghibli film featuring the voices of Liam Neeson, Noah Cyrus, Frankie Jonas, Tina Fey, Betty White, Clarice Leachman, Lily Tomlin, Matt Damon, and Kate Blanchett. Good luck, Bonnie. Tales from Earthsea was so badly received, so poorly received by all and sundry, that Hayao Miyazaki went, fuck it, I'm coming back out of retirement. And he came back to make a film about how he just finds his granddaughter adorable. Now, I think at the time, didn't Goro also, he also, he had his first son and he decided that having felt the absence of his father while he was growing up because Hayao was off being a fucking superstar king of uh, animation, he was going to be there for his son. So I cannot applaud that enough in terms of just deciding and prioritizing. He watched all those American films from the 90s where business dad is always on his phone and it's like, go to your son's karate recital. Yeah. And he went, look, the, He's doing karate the baseball. natural end of that path is I have to race around a crowded market on Christmas Eve 
to buy some toy, I'm not getting involved with that. You so, do realise no. that Jingle All The Way was only partly based on fact, right? <laughs> No, that's how you bring up kids. Okay. You ignore them for the first 11 years of their life. And then you have a buddy comedy with Sinbad. And you kill yourself trying to get them a toy. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, Ponyo is a story about a little girl with a round tummy, yes. I believe, if we listen to the, uh, uh, the end music. Oh, she's a little girl with a round tummy. Confirmed. Canon. Round tummy. It's a Little Mermaid-style story. I mean, I just went straight there from the beginning. If, if uh, uh, Howl's Moving Castle is your beauty and the beast, this is your Little Mermaid. It's about a little fish who wants to be a human. And she breaks away from her father, the sea wizard's um, emporium of magic at the beginning. Uh, we watched the Japanese version, but he's voiced by Liam Neeson. So he's like, Ponyo, you can't go to the surface. You're going to be taken. And <laughs> she she swims away and makes friends with a little boy. And she spends her time as a fish, and she's still just kind of observing humans. And there's a lot of visual storytelling about this one. There's a lot of silence and quiet. And I suspect this is going to be one of those ones where the American version fills in the silence and the sea just with plinky plunky bouncy music to make sure that the kids don't get nervous but it's about a little boy who lives by the sea with his mum and finds Ponyo, keeps her in a bucket and then she gets away from him and gets taken back by Liam Neeson who's like, I tell you, you're going to be taken you're going to be put in a bucket then she starts acting out and going, no, I want to be a human. And out of sheer willpower, she turns into what has been dubbed Chicken Ponyo online. And Chicken Ponyo is a living nightmare. Like a, a, a fucking frog from your dreams with chicken feet and these goggle eyes that go everywhere. But she's on her way to becoming a human again by sheer power of will. And so she kind of bursts up onto the land racing back towards this little boy who's kind of her Prince Eric and it's not they're very sweet in that it's not it's never a romance but it's definitely a bond of friendship and it's a bond of I like you a lot and we don't even really have to say anything we just really like each other's company and it's a lonely boy because his father uh, I want to say played by Matt Damon but I don't remember this character ever speaking in the movie uh, is always away on an, is he a fisherman or, or on an oil rig something like that yeah and he lives uh, with his mum on this little island and there's a bunch of uh, old yentas, uh, sort of little old ladies uh, in a... Uh, there's a retirement, retirement home, home near, yeah, the, near the sea. Who his mother tends to. But what really causes the, the big change in this movie isn't really even Ponyo so much. Uh, though, you know, she kind of morphs into a little girl who then, uh, with no questions asked, gets to hang out with this kid. And... Then there's a massive flood in the night. And the house was at the very top of the hill. And so the floodwaters have come up all the way to that. Which then creates a kind of scenario of this boy and the little girl, Ponyo, go exploring to look for say, other survivors. It's a very child-friendly disaster. And uh, no one seems to be really traumatized by it. There's this wonderful little uh, candle-operated boat. Again, Miyazaki's really thought carefully about the actual, uh, the, the mechanical application of it, most likely because it's based on a real Japanese toy. But it's to do with like a, a little candle in there heating 
uh, either water or paraffin or something which makes a little thing putter and go, which which gets a propeller working. And because she has very non-defined magic, Ponyo is able to embiggen this thing, and so they go puttering around in it. But it's how the world looks when submerged that creates a slight undercurrent of unease in the film, which I think is actually the most haunting and maybe the most powerful aspect of it, that they are floating above roads and above the, the world that's been submerged. And it's, it's not a little post-apocalyptic. And everything else about this movie is so kid-friendly and cute. And it's, it's a film about growing up and the, the pain of having to pull yourself away from a comfortable life and live in an uncomfortable one, but one that you choose for yourself. But there is, an, like I say, an undercurrent which just keeps it from being too cloyingly sweet. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing about the flooding and the world underneath the water, I think there's there's a lot of unspoken kind of almost give and take in the relationship, uh, relationship between Ponyo and the little boy in the sense that she has left the water to join him. But the flood means that his world is now better suited to her in her original form. That's a fine point. But she she continues to retain her little girl form, but there's this there's a lovely cost benefit thing going on with Ponyo's magic, which is that when she's tired, her magic starts to fade. And in particular, there's a moment with the boat after the floodwaters have risen and they're going around in this boat. It's like they're, they're helping people. They're bringing stuff back and forwards. But the boat is all they have to stop them from being completely and utterly lost and, and unable to get anywhere. But because Ponyo is so exhausted, the boat shrinks and they lose their their transport. So Suke is the name of uh, the little boy. Okay, and so his father, Koichi is indeed voiced by Matt Damon. I didn't ah, just imagine okay. that. Uh, so, yeah, Suzuki um, effectively has to become Ponyo's protector. And there's this sort of... He dedicates himself to protecting her mm. in the same way that she has dedicated herself to following him, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's what I mean about it's not romantic. It's, it's more a, a very, very strong bond of, uh, of I like you and I will protect you. They're almost... Uh, like Timon and Pumbaa in that regard. Uh, but uh, they don't um, clash platonic in Platonic life partners. Yeah, platonic life partners. But they, they don't clash in that uh, same way. and They aren't an odd couple. They're, they're kindred spirits. They This is about recognising that someone is just like you and just wanting to be around that yeah. person. It's almost time. like a, a kind of a spiritual sibling relationship. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole thing about Ponyo can live as a human, the balance of nature will be restored if Sasuke can pass a test. And there's... Ponyo's mum turns up eventually and she's a giant woman! She's a moon-stroke sea goddess. Mm -hmm. She's huge. Yeah. She looks a lot like the the giant fairies in Breath of the Wild. And uh, Sasuke says... Uh, the eventual test he has to pass is if she has to be a fish or a human, will you love her all the same? And he says, absolutely. Fish or human, it just doesn't matter to me. And that is rather trans-friendly, since The Little Mermaid is one of the most beloved allegories for that state of being. And there's a purity to that love, the idea that it's an unconditional acceptance. It's, it, he, he's, a, he's a wonderful kid. 
and Ponyo likewise has to give up her magical powers if she's going to be uh, a human. So there's a again there's this painful sort of goodbye to to certain aspects of of your life that feel more magical, and there isn't that sense of immediate pain. Like, uh, uh, one of the films that immediately made me think of, weirdly, was City of Angels. Mm. It's not a million miles off of that, if you think that uh, um, Nicolas Cage agrees to become human just so he can be with Meg Ryan, and then the film very deliberately then slaughters Meg Ryan just so that he can feel pain. And then the film says, ah, but that pain's part of life. And it's like, yeah, I guess so. And then it hurts a lot. That movie did have kind of a profound effect on me because when I first got together with Sharon, I was fairly certain one of us was gonna die. That's how happy we were. I was like, there's gotta be a catch. You know, next Tuesday I'll fall down an elevator shaft onto some bullets. I'd be like, I knew there was something. But that's not how this film ends. It just ends on a lovely kind of uh, a little kiddie sing song. It's very much a return to You know, that whimsical, you're only seeing when you're very small. It seems like Miyazaki going, let's just dial it back, dial it back to when it was total innocence. And that was is what this is. But there is that undercurrent, which I think gives it a little bit more weight no, under unintended. the surface. Pun intended. Which <laughs> gives it a bit more under the surface. Liam Neeson's character is uh, actually reminds me of uh, any Narnia fans out there, of Uncle Andrew from... Uh, the magician's nephew, this kind of straggle-haired wizard who just wants power and uh, kind of needs to be put back in his place and becomes a kind of an awkward geek mm. as a result of that. Which I suppose is kind of like the Witch of the Wastes in... Uh, yeah, yeah. But he's, there's kind I mean, of a sympathy not... with these with these misguided magic users. Yeah, he's not as bad as Uncle Andrew mm. and uh, Ponyo's mother is certainly no comparison to Jardis. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> no this, I wasn't going to make that comparison, but very specifically, he doesn't want Ponyo to leave, very much in a King Triton way. Yeah. And it's like, you got a thousand fish daughters, what's one fish going to make any difference? Yeah. But uh, it's, there's a there's a little message in there about if your children want to go off their own way, maybe you should supportively let them. Maybe but, you should take your own advice, Mr. Miyazaki. But that's not really a subtext that they look at at the film. Let's let's uh, happily unexplore that, shall but we? That's none of my business. <laughs> Drink some more tea. Okay, moving on. Oh. The Secret World of Arietti. And we will have to wait until next time, but currently, Arietti and When Marnie Was There are the less talked about hidden gem Studio Ghibli films that I discovered through this project. Even though I'd seen Arietti before, I didn't love Arietti, and now I do. Those are the two I'd recommend. In the meantime, it is important to remind everyone that School of Movies is funded by our folks on Patreon. Thank you very much to everyone who still supports us month to month. You have kept this show going. We do this thanks to you. And as always, our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, 
Daniel Salgueiro, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman. A big thank you to Alejandro Vargas for your contribution to this episode. And to play us out, music from the unappreciated, nowhere near as bad as everyone makes it out to be, Tales from Earthsea, and the Celtic stylings of Tamiya Terashima.
その翼休めることはできなくて心を何に例えよう人影絶えたのの道を私と共に歩んでるあなたもきっと寂しかろう虫のささやく草原を共に人だけど耐えてもの言うこともなく心を何に例えよう独り道ゆくこの心寂しさを。